Well, hey everybody, Mike Griffith here. Welcome to tonight's Ingles on the Beat. And as you can see, I've got a very special guest with me tonight, Jeremy Pruitt. Coach Pruitt, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on, man. No, I appreciate it, Mike. Yep. So, so a lot of people probably don't know our background, Jeremy. So I'll just tell them that it goes way back. And I didn't know Jeremy then, admittedly, but but Jeremy was uh, on the Alabama kickoff team. He also ran the scout team. So Jeremy was kind of a coach before he was a coach. Jeremy and I share a mutual friend. Uh, coach Ivy Williams was a position coach at Alabama who ran the scout team. And Jeremy was his guy. So every week, Jeremy was running the defense and having to teach the defense what the Alabama opponents were doing and in uh, and, and, and between trying to tackle Sean Alexander. So, Jeremy, I can just imagine what those Alabama practices were like for you back in the day when you played for the Tide. Well, the rule was not to get anywhere close to Sean. I can assure you that during practice. <laughs> and you didn't have to worry about that with me. Well, early on, it's funny when I covered Bama and, and Sean was on the scout team offense, even when Bama had the first team defense, they couldn't get close to him. And Bill Oliver used to tell Ivy all the time, boy, you must have some awful good running backs for this guy to be on the scout team, Ivy. And, and you know how that goes. So, uh, and then Jeremy, of course, was uh, the head coach at Tennessee and I covered uh, Jeremy's first year and uh, and it was an exciting time uh, for Tennessee and for Jeremy. A lot of people know Jeremy's background, uh, a national championship defensive coordinator at two different schools, Florida State and Alabama. And of course, Jeremy spent a couple of years here at the University of Georgia coaching under Mark Richt in 2014 and 2015. So let's start there, Coach. What do you remember about your time at Georgia? Some favorite memories in coaching with Coach Rick? Well, the, the first thing is I, I got married when I went to Georgia. I met my wife at Florida State, and, and we got married. We had our first son there, Ridge. Um, and, you know, it was, um, it was really a unique experience for me because from the college game, I had worked for Coach Saban. I'd worked for Jimbo, which is very similar to Coach Saban. And um, I had a chance to work for Coach Rick and, and – his a lot of his philosophical stuff came from Coach Bowden, and so you talk about two of the guys that uh, probably in the last you know hundred years uh, have done it as well as anybody. Uh, so I had an opportunity to to see two kind of different perspectives, but both that had had a lot of success and uh, a lot of things that I learned there. So uh, uh, it was it was an awesome experience working for Coach Rick. Uh, you know. Um, just seeing him pour into everybody within the program that it's more than just the game of football. Yeah, well, for sure. And and we saw Coach Rick uh, coach it out there down at Miami. He's now living back in the Athens area. It's kind of interesting, Jeremy. All these former Georgia head coaches all live here. You got Coach Golf living around here and Coach Donnan and, and Coach Rick. And uh, I don't know that I would say that happens very many places, but it is kind of a unique place. And and you had kind of a key role here, I believe. And, you know, I think Georgia fans that know their history will remember when you were here. You were one of the people who spoke out loud and publicly about where Georgia was at in the facilities game. And at that time, Georgia did not have an indoor facility. And you said, hey, man, these guys are losing some opportunities to practice that the other teams are getting. And I guess I would just ask you if you can reflect on uh, being outspoken about that at the time, one. And two, uh, I guess since, since you said that and Kirby's gotten hired, Georgia has put up $240 million 
worth of facilities and how integral has that been to their success in your opinion? Well, I, you go back to, I remember the night that I actually said that. I shouldn't have said it <laughs> probably to begin with, but uh, I was just speaking from the heart and from experience of recruiting against Georgia uh, and Kirby knows because he recruited against Georgia and, and we talked about it, uh, you know, when we worked at Alabama, but man, what facilities they have now. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm, from my understanding, they've actually built another or, or they're starting another uh, piece of the Buttsmere. Is the Buttsmere even still there now? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, they just added on $80 million building and now 68 and a half more million going into Sanford Stadium. Right. And, and um, you know, from the, the locker room there on, uh, in the stadium to the recruiting area in the stadium, uh, you know, I think they've really done a, a fantastic job, and Kirby's going to continue to do that because he knows that uh, it takes really good facilities, uh, and that really that the best players want to play for the best coaches and the people that have the best stuff. Yeah, no doubt about it. And now Georgia has apparently caught up, but Kirby's beating the you know, drum, saying, "Hey guys, uh, we need to keep going, uh, Coach. You probably have seen Florida's got an eighty-five million dollar building about to open." I believe Auburn with an 85, 90 million building. So the money keeps being spent in facilities. And we saw when Coach Saban took over at Bama, uh, that was one of the first things that Coach Saban did was make sure the Tide uh, had some preeminent facilities. You, know, you were a part of that staff early on with Nick Saban and Kirby Smart. And I guess I would just ask you what that was like to be. I mean, that's a lot of intensity in one room, man. And, and, and you, you know, you're not really, you know, you're not a real shy guy either. I'm, I'm trying to imagine what some of these staff meetings and practices were like with, with yourself and Kirby uh, and Nick. And how did that prepare you to become uh, a championship defensive coordinator? Well, I think when you work for Coach Saban, um, he, he's really about efficiency. Um, and the one way to, to be that way as a coaching staff is you got to be honest with each other. If you don't agree with something, you got you to tell the other person, I don't agree with it or I like that. Um, and I think if you do that, you know, um, I guess, you know, it, I've been on the, I've been on the, you know, the bad end when coach Saban has, you know, corrected me, but the great thing about it, it it's a correction. It's no different than a player, you know, it's, it's, uh, he's just being efficient. And, and if you don't agree with something, uh, and Kirby's the same way you, you talk about it. And, um, I, I think it's why both of them are very successful. No doubt. And and that was one heck of a staff. Uh, I think you overlapped with Lane Kiffin, too, didn't you? Lane was there a year. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, wow. That's a dynamic football staff right there. I guess four SEC coaches on one Nick Saban staff. That says quite a bit. One of the interesting uh, aspects of your background is having been an Alabama player uh, growing up in the state of Alabama. Your dad was a high school coach. You were very familiar with the Alabama-Auburn rivalry. And of course, the Iron Bowl was named the Iron Bowl because they played in Birmingham. Well, Pat Dye came along at Auburn and said, you know what, guys? We're taking our home game back to Auburn, Alabama. And Alabama wasn't real high about that, wasn't real happy. They fought it for a while, kept playing their home game in Birmingham, even though Auburn took their game back home. And a lot of fans at the time said, well, this isn't the Iron Bowl anymore. And um, I don't know, here we are some 20-some years later. And I think most people are pretty comfortable with that being a home and home. Well, now fast forward and we're looking at the cocktail party, which has a tremendous amount of tradition uh, played in Jacksonville every year between Georgia and Florida. 
you were a part of the Georgia football staff. What were your thoughts on that rivalry game? And do you think that if that game went home and home, it would lose any of its luster? I, I, I do not. Um, you know, I, I get the tradition, the cocktail party. I grew up watching it. Um, and I know people have been going down there for years and gen really generations, right? Uh, but absolutely, when you when you sit there and look at your schedule if, at the University of Georgia, and I have no idea how Kirby feels about this or any of the people there, but I do know that just from a recruiting standpoint, if I'm a if I'm one of the top players in the country, and and we know Georgia's going to be really good every year. Uh, Florida's probably got some making up to do there, but if Florida gets to become Florida again, that's going to be a game that's going to draw some of the best players in the country. Uh, and these guys, these these prospects, they're going to choose the games. Okay, what game do I want to go see Georgia play? What game do I want to go see Alabama? Maybe Clemson, LSU, whoever, right? Um, and if they choose that game, that might be the only time that maybe if it's a Georgia home game that that they possibly could get uh, one of the best players in, in uh, the country on their campus to see what a game day atmosphere is in Athens. And let me tell you from experience, uh, Athens is one of the premier places in the country when it comes to hosting a college football game. Uh, so, you know, you, you, you want the, the top players to experience that. Well, you know, and a lot of folks say, well, why can't you just bring the players to that game? You know, and I've always thought, you know, shoot, if Gainesville is 69 miles away, maybe those players are going to Gainesville and we just we just don't. I mean, that's an easy drive. They can see the the University of Florida campus on the way to Jacksonville or after the game. But I just don't know if any kids ever drove up to Georgia after that game. Uh, Coach, did that, I don't think that ever happened. I don't think so. I don't think so. A little bit out of the way, probably. A little bit out of the way. Well, we did mention earlier in the show that you uh, did win a national championship coaching at Florida State under Jimbo Fisher. And, of course, you did learn a lot and spend a lot of time working for Nick Saban at Alabama. So, you know, I've asked everybody else their opinion, and I think just about everybody else on the planet has weighed in. But you saw a very much publicized exchange between Coach Saban when he alluded to, uh, you know, the Texas A&M recruiting class essentially saying that they bought the class. And we're in an NIL age now where kids can have contracts, can uh, have arrangements uh, that they're planning on getting. So it wasn't like Coach Saban said that Jimbo Fisher was breaking any rules. And yet Jimbo Fisher took extreme exception to that and kind of made it personal with his comments with Coach Saban. As you're, as you're sitting there uh, as a spectator on the sideline, knowing both of these men, did it surprise you? Did it not surprise you? And and how do you put that into perspective as an experienced coach? Well, I know Jimbo and Nick have a relationship, and I'm sure uh, they've probably talked uh, since then. Uh, I don't know a whole lot about the ins and outs of either one of them's recruiting class because I was not in college football this past year. But one thing that I would say, it would be interesting who plays Alabama and who plays Texas A&M after they play each other, because I'm going to say there's going to be some pads popping in that game. I think I think you're right. A lot of people may not know this, but uh, Jimbo Fisher was actually at the national championship game. One of the first people to greet you when you came out of the locker room after you won the 2017 national title. He was there to see you and Coach Saban. So when we talk about these coaches uh, being close, 
there's a lot of places Jimbo Fisher could have been in January, and he chose to be there with uh, Jeremy Pruitt shaking his hand and congratulating him on getting a head coaching job and to be there to support Nick Saban and, and probably Kirby Smart to some respect. Uh, you know, Jimbo was there, and that was your launch point. Of course, you became the University of Tennessee football coach, took over a, a pretty difficult situation, I would say. And in that time you spent in Knoxville, what were some of the lessons, some of the takeaways that you got out of that head coaching experience? Well, uh, lots of things, right? The longer you do something, the better you get at it. I think if you look at uh, any assistant coach, it's a first-time coordinator, a head coach, it's a first-time head coach. The longer you do something, you obviously the more time on it, you're going to improve at it. Um, I would say for me to figuring out that I, I couldn't do it all myself. Uh, you know, it's there's I, I had always been on one side of the ball uh, and it was easy to manage one side of the ball and coach my position. When you add three, um, the, you know, the offensive element, the special teams element, the the recruiting and all the things involved, it takes a lot of folks. So, um, you know, probably that's probably the biggest thing is learning that and and. and you, you can't believe everything that you're told either. <laughs> well, <laughs> that is for sure. You know, I remember, Coach, your first year, I think Tennessee might have been the only team, or excuse, yeah, it was, that held Jake Fromm without a touchdown pass. And uh, I remember telling you that, and you said, well, that doesn't matter because we lost. But still, and then the next year, uh, there in 2020, I, I believe you guys held a, a halftime lead on Georgia uh, with a goal line stand. And, I, and again, you didn't win the game, but there were signs you were doing some things uh, effectively, certainly as one of the, the regarded as one of the best defensive minds in football. How tough is it, though, to prepare for a Kirby Smart Georgia football team? And what are some of the staples or nuances that, that you've noted about the Kirby teams that you faced when you were at Tennessee? You know, I think one thing that um, Kirby has done an outstanding job is is getting his staff to buy into complimentary football you know you look at this past year they had one of the best defenses in the history of college football uh, and you look at the offensive staff and and they were very efficient one of the things that um i guess probably to me it, it just didn't it didn't jump out to me as the season went along statistically how good georgia was offensively they're one of the best teams in the country statistically on offense as well but you didn't sense that as you were watching the games you know they they wasn't flashy um and but they they just kind of stayed within themselves and and stayed the course and i think they've done an outstanding job of of doing that um i think one of the things that's going to be really interesting for georgia this past year and i think uh people don't realize the the advantage that Georgia has by having Kirby. Uh, after you win a national championship the next year, it, it's so hard. Everybody has relief central, you know, so it's a new year. So the guys that made all SEC or all American this past year, nobody cares. It's time to do it all over again. And, you know, Kirby's been through that a couple of times as an assistant coach and he, and he has seen, what has happened and knows the pitfalls and the mistakes that can happen the following year. Uh, and I think that's going to be key for Georgia this next year. And the, the fact that they have a coach that has been there and done that. Uh, so I, I look for Georgia to possibly avoid some of those 
those pitfalls this year because of Kirby's experience. Yeah, no doubt. You were telling me that Friday, you feel really good about this Georgia team. And yet, uh, coach, I got to ask you, I mean, these guys had a record setting NFL draft. You've also been a part of evaluating Georgia from the professional level. Uh, they had 15 players drafted. They had uh, a record five first round picks on defense. Of course, you've been at, as we said, you've been on those Alabama teams that have won titles and reloaded. Uh, you've been a part of Florida State's national championship team. You've been a part of Georgia. When you lose 15 guys to the NFL draft, um, where do you start and what are some of those challenges beyond what you just mentioned, the relief syndrome and, and making everyone recognize there's a reset button? Well, uh, I, obviously Georgia's been recruiting at a very high level, so there's still a lot of really good football players at Georgia. Um, and and you probably or I, not probably you know them a lot better than I do, Mike. Um, but there's something about having experience, um, and and one of the most important things is experience at quarterback, and Georgia has that. Um, so, you know, uh, you, they've got experience at quarterback. They they've recruited well in the, the offensive line. They have explosive players on offense. Uh, as long as Kirby's at Georgia, they're going to play good defense. Uh, it may be a different, you know, a different uh, group each year. Maybe the maybe the 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 D line may be a little stronger than the inside backers this year, just because experience or uh, maybe the secondary. But they're, they're going to play good defense, and and they'll figure out a way uh, to do it. It might look a little different, but you you can bet they'll be there uh, when it counts. No doubt. We mentioned your experience. You were with the New York Giants, Coach Judge, of course, and uh, I believe I think Derek Dooley was also on that staff. But some former dogs on that uh, on that franchise team: Aziz Ajalari, Tay Crowder, Andrew Thomas. Was there a common thread? Did you have some interactions, some thoughts about those guys? And um, did they all look like long term veterans to you? Well, you know, Tay was at Georgia um, when I was a defensive coordinator. And at that time, he was a running back, and, and uh, he was red-shirted. And, and he was probably one of the best scout team running backs uh, that, that we ever faced uh, in all my years just because he's, he's dependable. He's going to do what, you, what he's supposed to do 100% of the time, all the time. And I think that's the way all three of those guys uh, kind of sum those guys up. They all have different levels of talent. Uh, but they're all very dependable uh, and guys that uh, that are smart that you can see being able to play football for a long time. Well, one of the things about the players that, that play defense for yourself or Coach Saban or Kirby Smart is they are playing at an NFL level. Sometimes those defenses are, are uh, complex, certainly compared with others in terms of the fronts and the coverages and the way that uh, coaches like yourself get these guys ready for the NFL. And and now, Coach, we're in an era where, you know, some people say they're kind of pros now with, with the new NIL name image likeness rules that are in effect and the one-time transfer. Now, you were uh, a transfer yourself. People may not know that, but you began your career as a scholarship uh, athlete at Middle Tennessee State. Uh, you were quarterback in high school. Never asked you how you got out of that, but you started out at MTSU before transferring to Bama, and you were a proponent of, uh, of giving kids an opportunity to transfer. Now, from where that was then when you talked about it four or five years ago to where it is now, it's kind of zero to 100. What are your thoughts about the NIL and how this is used in recruiting as well as the one-time transfer and the roster management 
challenges that we're going to see in college football? Well, I was actually I was a proponent for for the tran for the transfer rule and the portal and also the NIL. Just starting with the portal, I, it's tough enough um, in the world that these young men and women are living in now um, to have success. Uh, things change, coaches coaches change. Um, you know, things happen uh, at home for them. So allowing them to be able to make a one time transfer and be eligible, I think is a good thing. Uh, you know, I, I just don't see it as um, being taken advantage of. When it comes to the NIL, I was absolutely for that. Uh, with an opportunity, as much money that's being made in TV right now uh, with college athletics, um, there's too many times that you just you, – you see the people that are participating. I mean, let's, let's face it, without the college athletes – the college coaches and administrators would not have jobs, you know, so without, without the student athlete, uh, there, there, there is no job for the college coaches. So I think giving back to them um, and, and I think I, I could see it coming down the road with TV money, you know, at some point in time, possibly getting a share of that, but there's just too many times you, you go on the road and you recruit and the circumstances that, um, some people live in, not everybody, but some people, it, um, they, they need some help. Maybe they, they didn't have the advantage of, of, of somebody else. So uh, I think it's a good rule. Obviously, I, I'm, I'm not in it right now, but it sounds like there's some coaches that are concerned about people taking advantage of it. Well, the way I look at it, that's kind of been the way everybody's done, whatever the rule was. So um, – I mean, just uh, we, we have a governing body uh, and I'm not sure that our no this is no disrespect to the NCAA. I think they do the best that they possibly can. But I mean, how can they be in so many places at one time? Right. So it's a it's a tough job uh, and everybody tries to do the best that they can. Uh, I kind of look at college athletics. It's kind of like golf. You know, it's supposed to be a gentleman's game and. And if you see something, you're supposed to kind of help report it or whatever. It's why you have compliance on your on your campus. Um, so, but I think the NLI is good. I think it's good for college athletes, and uh, and hopefully some of these uh, men and women can take advantage of it. Yeah, and we'll see that continue to evolve as we move forward, Coach. We know that. Uh, uh, different administrators right now trying to put some sort of framework. We're talking about different calendars, transfer calendars, so that uh, roster management uh, can be effective. Uh, players can be, you know, make sure schools have enough kids on scholarship this year. They've waived the 25-man signing limit. So I think it's a work in progress. It may eventually end up in Congress. Uh, we'll see if there ends up being some sort of an exemption or a salary cap. I know, you know, Lane Kiffin's out there having all sorts of fun with it and poking and, and prodding different people. But, you know, lanes at Old Miss that may not have the resources of a, a Texas, a Tennessee, a, a Georgia, or an Alabama. So you understand why people are coming at it from different directions. You know, I mentioned Old Miss a minute ago, and Matt Luke is a guy that I know you've run across a few times. Of course, he was the head coach at Old Miss and Kirby's offensive line coach, and he made a lot of headlines this offseason when Coach Luke said he needed to step away from the game because the game – uh, was I don't want to use the word burnout, but he was talking about being at an amusement park and his kid was on a ride and he had to take a phone call from that recruit. 
I guess I would ask you about this gap year that you're taking right now to spend with your family about the demands on coaches and can anything be done about that or is that just part of the deal when you're a head football coach or even an assistant coach for that matter? Well, <clears throat> there. I'm going to talk about the guys that are on campus first, Mike. So the, the, the players at Georgia, right? So I'm just going to use the Georgia as an example. So for the last month, Kirby and his staff have probably worked, I don't know, 35, 40 days in a row. They've come out of May recruiting. They've got camps. They got official visits. People are traveling because this is the time because it's fixing to be a dead period. Right. Um, and, so probably this past Sunday, I, I think that's when the dead period started. So probably for about three weeks now, um, it's the time that they usually take off for vacation. Well, the most important part for this coming year is the guys that are on campus right now, the, the, the Georgia football players, when, you talk, when we're talking about football here. So not only have they been recruiting official visits, but they've been trying to have meetings with their own players every day. Um, and, and it's a fine line about, you know, you recruit these guys to come play for you, but once they're there, do you actually spend enough time with them? So, uh, and I know everybody tries to, but you're trying to recruit the next class. It's just, there's not enough hours in the day, Mike, just to be honest, there's not enough hours in the day. I always tried to err on the guys that were already on my team. Uh, because I had sat in the homes with their moms and their dads or grandmothers, granddaddies, and told them that I was going to invest in them. So I tried to spend more time with those guys. Uh, but I do think that uh, maybe college, especially college football, you know, there's 120 guys on a team. I could see to where it gets more like the NFL. You got a personnel side, maybe a recruiting side, and then you have a coaching side because it's important that good men and women spend time with these 18 to 22 year olds, because I'm telling you, it's not easy for them. Uh, the academics, the circumstances, the world that we live in, and they're counting on the men and women that they're around. I know you, you have children. I have children myself, you know, when they go to college, if they're good enough to, or afford, whether they play sports or not, they're going to be around somebody, right? And you want them to be around good people. And I, I just think that it's important that we find that middle ground there. Uh, I think if we do that, you might not see as much people jumping in the portal. You know, you might not see that. So uh, about my time off, it's been awesome. Uh, you know, sometimes um, you don't realize when you receive a blessing and probably for me, uh, no disrespect to anywhere I've ever worked, but, just for me and my family, my wife and my children, this has been good for us. Uh, it's been really good for us. So we're excited to see what happens over the next seven months and the time that we get to spend together. So I've done a lot of things in the last five months that I didn't even dream that my wife was doing. So uh, let me tell you, the, the coaches' wives out there, they do not get enough credit, I can assure you. What kind of, give me, give me some examples. What's, what's, what's she got you doing or what, what have you done, Jeremy, that you weren't aware that, uh, that Miss Pruitt uh, had to deal with that you had to deal with these last five or six months? Well, I mean, just everything. Cause I've never been at home. I mean, for, for the last, every, how many years we've been married, eight, nine years, I'm, I'm never at home. And so I sent her off for a week 
Uh, Mike, I'm not sure I, I, uh, I had anything to eat or showered for two or three days. I don't know how they do it. And I was begging her to come home. <laughs> well, I think it's only, I hope, I know you're going to enjoy this year. I know you're, I know you're back in, in your hometown there in Alabama. Uh, just a matter of time though. I got to think coach before you're back on the field. I know that this year is special, but with your experience and the places you've been and the, the kids you've coached and the coaches you've coached with, um, have, have you thought about whether it's a NFL or college? I mean, you know, obviously your analysis tonight was, was very crisp. Uh, you could get into media, I suppose, if you wanted. Have you, have you given any of that thought yet? I've not. I've just really tried to focus on where my, my feet are. And right now it's with my family. Uh, it's going to be the first time that I've not been a part of a team. Uh, probably since I was five years old. So that's going to be unique for me. Um, I'm always going to miss uh, – I love being around the players. Uh, that, that's, that's why I got in this business. Uh, I, it, there, there's something fulfilling when you, when you help somebody else accomplish something that they want to accomplish. So uh, I'm going to miss that part. But you know what? I've had a lot of coaches from around the country that I didn't know that have reached out to me. So I'm – I've had a few conversations on the side, and I've really enjoyed that, just trying to help whoever I can help there. But uh, I'm looking forward to watching college football, NFL football, and watching some high school football. So I'm just going to plant the seed. I know your old roommate, Freddie Kitchens, is at South Carolina, and Shane Beamer has been very aggressive. hiring. I'm not saying that for sure. You, there's a lot of places. Maybe Nick Saban hires you. I don't know, but we're going to see you somewhere. Coach, I want to thank you for your time tonight. Very insightful interview. And, uh, you know, you and Casey, enjoy this time together and I uh, wish you the best of luck. Thanks a lot, Mike. You bet. Coach Jeremy Pruitt, uh, where's he going to be next? We don't know. What we do know is that we have one heck of a sponsor every Monday night. And they have been there for us through thick and thin, ups and downs. And, of course, they were there to help bring you this presentation with Jeremy Pruitt tonight. That's our sponsor, Ingles. Let's take this moment and recognize Ingles. Well, welcome back to the show. Mike Griffith here and uh, really interesting interview with Coach Pruitt. You know, uh, Jeremy was a guy that I didn't know him when I covered him at Bama. He was a scout team captain. If you missed that part of the interview, he was roommates with a guy that I did know really well, Freddie Kitchens. You heard me mention that at the end now. Freddie Kitchens now a part of that South Carolina staff. And don't forget, don't forget Todd Munkin, the George offensive coordinator, worked for Freddie Kitchens when Freddie Kitchens was the Cleveland Browns head coach. So uh, a lot of intrigue and you guys see how the SEC is all tied together. You think about Jeremy being a part of a staff with Lane Kiffin, uh, Kirby Smart, Nick Saban. I mean, there's four coaches on that staff. I guess, you know what? I should have asked him about Billy Napier because I believe Billy Napier overlapped with Jeremy as well at the University of Alabama. So it's really interesting to see how these coaching staffs work together. I thought Jeremy was some really interesting takes on the Georgia football facilities, on the cocktail party from a coach's perspective, and on Kirby Smart and why Georgia has such a big advantage going into the 22 season. Even though they lost so many players, Jeremy, with some astute points that maybe a lot of us didn't think about. I think he did a great job with the interview, and I appreciated Jeremy coming on. 
Uh, he was always fair and straightforward with me as a coach when I covered him. And so I'm really thankful that he gave this Georgia audience, our Dog Nation crowd, uh, some background information. So uh, I guess since I've come on last, everybody's asked me about it on their show. And so I guess I need to bring it up on my show. I was asked about it this morning about Arch Manning going to Texas. Oh, boy. We all sigh. We all say get over it already. Uh, my goodness, it, it's a done deal. Is it a done deal? I'm not convinced. I know uh, Jeff Centel has a lot of good intel. Uh, you know, as far as five stars typically don't decommit, and Jeff is absolutely right. But I don't have the same confidence in Texas uh, to think that I'm certain that Steve Sarkeesian is going to win more than six games. Remember, they've got to play Alabama this year, and they've got to play Texas San Antonio. And, and Texas San Antonio is no joke. That's a team that drilled Illinois last year in a, a really fine, smaller school. In addition to the Oklahoma States and the Oklahomas, remember, this Texas team lost to Kansas. And all I'm saying is, what if they go five and seven again? Or what if they go six and six? Are the Mannings still going to have the same confidence in Steve Sarkeesian? Or will they switch? Will they switch horses and say, you know what? On the other hand, especially if this Kirby Smart offense does what many of us think they can do this year, and that is score more points and pass for more yards. Because remember now, Stetson had the whole offseason, and he has really good backups with Brock Vandegrift and Carson Beck. So I look at this Georgia offensive line. I think they're better than a year ago, okay? And I think that's not a stretch. We, we all respect Jamari Salyer and Justin Schaefer, but Broderick Jones looked really good. Amarius Mims is one year older, not even starting yet, and he's your sixth man, I believe. Cedric Van Pran, one year older. Warren McClendon, one year older. Could Tate Ratledge be back for the opener? That was your best run blocker. Was injured the first series of the season against Clemson. Maybe you plug Big Tate back in there. So there is a lot of dynamic players on that offensive line. And, oh, don't forget the tight end room. How could we forget? I guarantee you the opponents won't, but they better be careful because if they spend too much time on number 19, Eric Gilbert has shown us in that G-Day game, very dangerous, explosive weapon. I would put Eric Gilbert on par with Brock Bowers in terms of receiver danger, Will Rogers, or excuse me, Will Robinson. I think Eric Gilbert is a game changer, much like Brock Bowers. How in the world do you cover these two? Do you even have human beings on your team capable of it? And if you do, then what do you do with Big Zero, Darnell Washington, who can knock you down? I don't care who you are. He can block anybody and he can catch passes. You just got to put it up there. And he's got those big mitts. We saw it. He pulls it in and he runs people over. Those are your tight ends. We haven't even talked about the perimeter threats. A.D. Mitchell, the quick twitch X over there. Lad McConkey came on strong. Uh, over there at the uh, at the Z. And then in the slot, Kyrus Jackson's back. Kyrus is back to catch passes. Veteran slot receiver, Stetson's go-to guy in 2020 is back, healthy in the slot. Remember, Kyrus not healthy last year. So Arian Smith, maybe the fastest player in the country. All he does is catch touchdowns, right? What happens if he – and Dominic Blaylock, are we really that far down on the list without mentioning Dominic Blaylock? one of the most savvy, best route-running guys who had a breakout spring. And then and then this is the part where I get a little controversial because people always say, oh, you know, I believe this. You know this when, when we did K&M Squared last year. 
I think this backfield is going to be better than last year. I think Kenny McIntosh is a very solid all-around back. And I'm hearing that Kenny right now on some NFL draft boards, one of the top four or five running backs in the nation as far as the NFL scouts are concerned. Let's see what he does at Georgia. And you guys know about the moose, Kendall Milton. The power that Kendall has is unbelievable. And I like Dejon Edwards. I like what he brought. It's the fourth quarter. You can say the game's over, but everybody in the stadium knew Georgia was running the ball and Dejon was still knocking out five, six, seven, ten yards of carry. So I think this offense is explosive. Stetson, obviously, good mobility, excellent with the play reads at the line of scrimmage. I don't know if you know this, Georgia's got five or six run audibles when he goes to the line. There's a reason, there's a reason why those Georgia linemen are always out leveraging the defense because they're able to call different run plays at the line of scrimmage. And Stetson does a very good job with that. You've seen that he can pop that, that deep ball. He's got the pop a shot ball. He can throw that thing 50, 60 yards downfield. He just pops it up there, all that arc. So he's got the deep ball. You saw the yards uh, per reception among the leaders in the nation. And he's very good at finding his tight ends and receivers out of the backfield. I mean, this Georgia offense is going to be really, really tough for anyone to contend with. Now, today, uh, All-American team came out. Walter Camp, it's one of the many All-American teams. Three dogs on the first team, as I wrote about on dognation.com. Three heroes, okay? Three heroes of the championship drive. I didn't realize this until I looked it up. Brock Bowers had a touchdown catch in every one of the postseason games, including that 10-catch, 139-yard game against Alabama. He had 10 catches in one game. Put that in perspective, Darnell had 10 all year after missing the first four games of the season. Jalen Carter, you're not surprised by this. Uh, Jordan Davis and Devontae Wyatt told us, hey, this guy's better than we are. They were both first-round picks, and they're telling us that number 88 is better than both of them. And the NFL scouts agree, projected First uh, five-round pick, I've talked to some people on award committees. Look for Jalen to be on the Nagurski watch list as well as the Outland Trophy watch list. Uh, and certainly the blocked field goal, I thought the biggest play of the football game against Alabama. Uh, late in the third quarter, 318 left. Tide is up 9-6, to six, getting ready to kick a field goal and make it 12-6. to six. Instead, 88 blocks it. Momentum changes. Next play, Cook, 67 yards. Three plays later, Georgia touchdown, first touchdown of the game for the offense. And uh, just like that, Jalen Carter's block field goal changed the momentum in the game. And then, of course, Keely Ringo. He gave us the oil painting moment. We're all going to remember the play with Keely with the pick and the return to finally, finally put Bama down and erase the threat. So those were your three first-team uh, All-American uh, players. Yeah, circling it all the way back to Arch Manning. Uh, what do I think happens this year? Uh, could that affect how Kirby Smart manages the quarterbacks? Uh, not as much as the first half of the Oregon game will. But certainly, if you're a football coach, and now a, a guy like Arch Manning, who maybe could have, would have been your starter coming in in 2023, maybe now you have to look at it differently and say, you know, maybe back, maybe Vandegrift, but certainly get one of these guys. Does it change things a little bit in terms of how much experience you want to get them? Do you bring the backups in for more snaps earlier? Or if things go awry, if it's if all things are equal and, and the performances are the same, you know, there's a lot of different ways to look at how Georgia might manage this. I don't know how they're going to manage it. 
I have no idea. Just to be clear, I don't have a source telling me this is what's going to happen. But I can tell you from the 30 years I've covered college football that coaches always take everything into consideration when they make a decision at every position. So I do think that the Arch Manning decommit could factor in this. Again, not convinced that it's completely done. Don't necessarily think uh, that, you know, that if Texas goes five and seven again, I think the Mannings would have to think about it. Um, or if Kirby Smart and George's offense looks dynamic and shows Manning something different. Uh, I just never say never in this day and age of NIL and 17 and 18 year old kids. Remember, Arch Manning, excuse me, Eli Manning did not play for the NFL team that he was drafted with. This is a family that runs more like a business. They're going to make a business decision before they sign in December. And chances are that he stays with Texas, to Jeff's point. I'm just going to say, I'm going to leave a little bit of margin for a little bit of margin for maybe out there. And I do think it has an effect and certainly a consideration and how Georgia manages the position this year. We'll, we'll, we will see what happens. It could be Stetson Bennett start to finish wire to wire. We could see more subbing in some of the blowout games to get these guys some experience. We could see more throwing the ball. I noticed that Kendall Milton, a really good receiver, and I worked hard on that. You got all three backs that can catch the ball really well out of the backfield. And, and maybe Kirby will have a point to prove after getting snubbed. Uh, on the commit. So this will be very, very interesting to keep an eye on. Certainly something uh, that I'm looking forward to this season. Kirby talked about his quarterbacks on Friday. So Manning committed on Thursday to Texas. And the very next day, Coach Smart did a podcast uh, out of Birmingham. I thought that was very interesting timing. And in that podcast, Kirby talked about his quarterback room and how good he felt about it. He said it's the best quarterback that he, room that he's had top to bottom. So I would agree that the depth is great. No doubt. Stetson Bennett, uh, Carson Beck doesn't have a lot of experience, but I think very, very highly of Carson Beck. I do believe he would be the starter at Alabama if he'd stayed committed. I know a lot of Bama fans challenge me on that, but what they don't know that I know, uh, maybe they know Bryce Young wasn't even looking at Alabama until Carson Beck decommitted. I spoke to Bryce's dad about that before the SEC title game. That's something I didn't know. I said, well, how about that? What would have happened? Okay. So I think highly of Beck. I thought he looked very good with the second team and the G-Day game. Not so good with the first team. Nobody looked good with the first team. Tribute to Will Muschamp and Glenn Schumann on how they had that defense ready. But I thought he looked very good with the second team. Brock Vandegrift from an athletic uh, size standpoint. I mean, what a beast. Uh, Oklahoma commit, very capable quarterback, and certainly Gunnar Stockton uh, with some very nice high school exploits here. Uh, good mobility and a big arm, uh, a little undersized, but not to the extent that I think that will hold him back. So very good quarterback room. But is it better than last year's? Would you trade Gunnar Stockton for JT Daniels? I don't know. Uh, better than 2019, uh, Jake Fromm and Stetson Bennett? probably from a depth standpoint, better than 2020, Stetson Bennett, JT Daniels, Dwan Mathis, Carson Beck, better than 2017, Jacob Eason, Jake Fromm, Stetson Bennett, better than 2018, Jake Fromm, Justin Fields. It's been interesting to say the least. Georgia has had some talent in that quarterback room, whether Kirby's uh, right that this is the best room or wrong. 
Uh, it's interesting when you compare the quarterback rooms and you realize just what a good job Kirby Smart and Georgia have done in recruiting really good quarterbacks, really talented quarterbacks. Another thing Kirby said that I thought was very interesting Friday, and I wrote a story about this Sunday, was that he's putting these quarterbacks out in front of the team on a daily basis. And he's doing it in, in, in age groups, of course, but still uh, he's going to make sure that these quarterbacks quarterback inherently is a leadership position in football. We all know that, but not, but quarterbacks inherently don't necessarily have those. Those skills are developed, I believe. And I think if you put guys like Bach Vandergriff and Carson Beck and Gunnar Stockton and Stetson Bennett out in front of the team, the team will eventually learn to respond more to them. I think those are the guys that you want setting the examples. You've only returned four guys who were game captains last year. There were 18 different players that served as game captains last year. You have four of them coming back. Do you all know who they are? Could you name them with me? Christopher Smith, Nolan Smith, Warren Erickson, and Kiaris Jackson. That's it. So there is a leadership void. You heard us talking to Jeremy Pruitt about that. I thought Coach Pruitt with some really good insight uh, into what he thought would happen at Georgia next year because of the leadership. Hope you got a chance to catch the first part of that interview. Well, I want to take a look and see if you have some comments. Now would be a good time uh, to ask your questions. I, I see that uh, I see that uh, someone, Hattie May, uh, doesn't think Manning is that good. You know, I don't know that that Arch Manning is, is truly the, the number one player in the country, but the dynamic of Manning – and the value of Manning is what he brings. I think when you sign a player like that, it gets the attention of all the other recruits. Certainly it sends a message that you're going to have quite a passing game and it may attract uh, some receivers. I think there's some NIL value to that. I wrote about that for Dog Nation. When I thought he would be a Georgia signee, I thought that uh, he would bring millions of dollars in NIL revenue. I still think he's got an NIL value wherever he goes. So I'm not so sure. Uh, where he ends up as a college player, I know he's a very strong prospect. He's got good mobility and a good arm. But as far as where he actually ranks, I don't know if, if any of us uh, really know that. Very interesting to see. Uh, let's see if you have other questions. Will Arch beat Kansas? A little bit of uh, saltiness there from Daniel Watson. Of course, Texas did not beat Kansas. And Texas played Kansas at home. And I've said this, and I'll say it on here. And this is not sour grapes. But I think the job that Steve Sarkeesian did at Texas last year is one of the worst jobs that I've ever seen from a first-year head coach at a big-time school. I don't know how you go 5-7 and seven at Texas with all that talent and all those resources. You've got to try really hard to be that bad. And you've got to try really hard to lose to Kansas at home. That is as humbling and as terrible of a loss by a major college program first-year head coach as I've seen in a long time. And I run the first-year Coach of the Year Award with Coach Steve Spurrier. So this is something I evaluate annually, and Sark did a terrible job. That's why I'm not completely sold that this is over. So in case you really wanted to know what I thought about that, that was a pretty funny comment, uh, I thought. Uh, the running game will be much better, Alex uh, Vetronic says. I agree, Alex. Excuse me if I mispronounce your last name. The, the type is a little small on the screen I'm looking at. Um, I do think that the running game is going to be better. And we saw in the G-Day game how important that running game is, right? Stetson was 15 to 35 with a couple of picks. And Kirby said, look, guys, we've told you all along how important that running game is. And Georgia did not run the ball much in the G-Day game. They didn't want to show you much. 
They didn't want to beat up those backs and they wanted to work on the things they needed to work on. And that was down in distance. Georgia was not good in third down situations with Stett last year. Kirby knows that it's not a secret and it's something that they're going to tackle head on because that's what Kirby does. He makes sure they're prepared. So he put those guys in those situations so that they could practice it. And, uh, and, and it wasn't always pretty, but it's not supposed to be, you know, I think, you know, a lot of people, want to see the fireworks uh, in an exhibition in a G-Day game or in a spring game. A lot of places I've been, it's actually been set up for the offense to score all these points and 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 look so great. Uh, but, you know, Kirby doesn't play that. Kirby doesn't hold the defense back as much, and Kirby thinks it's solid. Uh, a good question here put up on the screen. Why would you think Arch was coming to UGA? Well, I'll tell you why. Because Georgia went all in on him, and Kirby Smart doesn't lose too many of these battles. Number one, so out of respect for Kirby and out of Kirby's track record of landing great quarterbacks, that's the first thing. The second thing is Georgia is the defending national champion, okay? And Texas is a 5-17 and 17 with a shaky first-year coach. So to me, if I'm a player, I want to go where there's stability. I want to go where there's a proven track record of success. And I know if I'm a quarterback and go to Georgia, I'm going to have one of the best offensive lines to play behind. I've got some of the biggest targets, Oscar Delp. I didn't even mention him. This guy looks like the second coming of Bowers. You've got Bowers for two more years. Arch Manning would have had at least one year of Brock Bowers and at least uh, one more year, I think, of, of Eric Gilbert. So I think that the weapons that you have, the offensive line, just comparing the Georgia and Texas programs, the Georgia program is much more stable. Now, the reasons you wouldn't is because Sark's going to air it out, all gas, no breaks. Uh, well, if you want to put up 40 passes and, and throw for you know whatever yards, okay, well, maybe, maybe Texas wins that. But I've seen Georgia do that too. When JT Daniels was the quarterback, folks, he set the record for the highest pass efficiency rating in school history. And oh, by the way, the numbers that Stetson put up last year were the second best. JT and Stetson had better pass efficiency numbers in the Todd Munkin offense than Aaron Murray did. And when JT finished the 2020 season, he was the highest rated quarterback coming back. I watched JT throw for 400 yards against Mississippi State. I watched him throw for over 300 and three touchdowns against the South Carolina team that led the SEC last year and passing yards allowed. And oh, by the way, that's the game Arch Manning was at. And that was the game he attended. So when Georgia has the trigger and they have that style of quarterback and they have those perimeter receivers, Kirby has shown you Georgia can do that. But Kirby goes based on the personnel. And with Dominic Blaylock and George Pickens and JT Hurt last year, it didn't make sense to keep going four and five wide, especially when you had Brock Bowers emerge at tight end and you were able to run the ball and Stetson brought you mobility. So I think Georgia has shown you with Todd Munkin that they can make this offense look however they want. If Kirby wants to go four and five wide and, and have a quarterback throw for 400, JT Daniels showed you he could do that. If they want to pound it and be efficient and play mobility, Stetson Bennett has shown you they can do that. When I look in the Georgia quarterback room right now, I see different quarterbacks that can do different things. So while Stetson has the mobility, the RPO, the play action game, you know, you've got Carson Beck who can run the spread, who has decent mobility. You have Brock Vandegrift, who I think more likes Stetson RPO 
right? Play action game, strong arm. And Gunnar Stockton, another guy with mobility. So you've got some quarterbacks that can do both. And even now when they're recruiting, I saw you guys saw that Jeff did that story on the California quarterback that's a surfer. Um, He's a pocket quarterback. He's a pro-style quarterback. So I'm not sure what the future holds. I know this. I know Kirby's going to put the guy out there and run the offense that he thinks win games. Uh, Mike, who is your starting? Is that O-line against Oregon? I think that's offensive line. Uh, Well, Broderick Jones at left tackle. Um, Trying to think. Cedric Van Pran uh, would be my center. Uh, Warren McClendon would be my right tackle. Um, You know – I'm not sure if Tate Radlich is going to be back by the opener. Okay. I'm just not sure he's going to be back by the opener. I think that I don't think he's going to be ready to start. I think he's going to be ready to play. I'm gambling. I'm guessing. So I'm going to plug in Warren Erickson there. Uh, And if Tate Radlich isn't back, then I think you see Xavier Truss. Um, I think you see Amaris, Amaris Mims play though. I think you see him playing every game. I think you see him as part of the rotation. I think coach Stacy Searles, is going to rotate those players in there. I see the comment, uh, UGA is going to stop Oregon. That is going to be a very, very interesting game. You know, Connor Riley and I talk about that. Uh, You look at Dan Lanning over there. Uh, You look at Bo Nix over there. The Georgia schedule, and I put a poll up on Twitter. I don't know if you guys follow me, at Mike Griffith 32. Which SEC away game, not home game, because I included Florida in this, would you say is the one that concerns you the most? Is it at South Carolina? Is it at Kentucky? Is it at Mississippi State? Or is it playing Florida in Jacksonville? And I'm not sure what the poll says now, but a couple hours ago, uh, most people were voting for the Kentucky game in November. Very interesting. Uh, Remember, Georgia only with three SEC home games this year. This was the designated home game with Florida. So your home games in Sanford in the SEC uh, not real pretty, Tennessee, Auburn, and Vanderbilt. That is your home slate of SEC games. Your Oregon game, of course, in Atlanta. Going to be very, very interesting. I'm gonna be, It's going to be fascinating to see what happens. I will say this. I saw a comment asking me about the secondary, and I think you need to take this into consideration. You lost four first-round picks out of your front seven, And you lost two third-round linebackers out of the inside linebacker position. That is a lot of talent to lose. And you did hear Jeremy mention that experience is important. Uh, I think you also lost a first-round safety, and you lost your best cover corner, Darren Kendrick. That's a lot. I think this is a defense that's going to get better as the year progresses. But early on, you play a couple of those scrambling quarterbacks, and it gives Oregon a puncher's chance to have Bo Nix. It gives South Carolina a puncher's chance to have Spencer Rattler. I don't think those teams are going to beat Georgia, to be clear, but they do have great quarterbacks or quarterbacks who have a great upside. Neither one of those guys have been real consistent, but I guarantee you that that's going to be a concern for Kirby Smart to be playing those mobile quarterbacks. Very interesting stuff tonight. So I want to thank all of you guys for tuning in tonight to the show. I want to thank Connor Riley for producing the show. Michael Carvel on vacation. Connor stepped in. You guys saw he did a flawless job. I want to thank Jeremy Pruitt for joining us. Very interesting time in Coach Pruitt's life. Um, as I said, I covered Jeremy at Tennessee, had a good relationship with him. Um, going to shoot him straight. He shot you straight. 
I think you guys gained a lot of insight from Coach Pruitt tonight. Uh, interesting things to say. I think he has a lot to offer in his analysis, and I think it's just a matter of time before we see him back in college football. Tomorrow night, counter and coverage right here, same time, same channel. Wednesday night, you have Centel's Intel with Before the Hedges, and every day, 10 a.m., Dog Nation Daily with our very own Brandon Adams. Thanks, everybody, for joining me. Have a great week.